Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we're going to be talking about sinus tachycardia. And first, you may think, wow, that's not terribly exciting. But the idea for this podcast has come from many examples throughout my career of examples of getting patient changeover from other ED docs, getting calls from paramedics in the emergency department. I've got a you know patient in bed five. They're here with uh, chest pain. They're waiting on a couple labs and everything's normal. They can go home. Then taking a look at the monitor and seeing a heart rate of 120. You know, vital signs are called vital signs for a reason. They're not the kind of important signs. They can't be faked. And they're often the most important and the most objective information that we have in both the pre-hospital and even the ED setting. So today we're going to run down a differential for sinus tachycardia so that we can approach it in an organized fashion. Of note, notoriously absent from this differential is going to be anxiety. We deal in the death and disability prevention business. If every time we see sinus tach, we decide the patient's anxious and that's their diagnosis, we've been poster children for premature closure, number one. We decided it's anxiety. We've not considered any other potentially deadly or disabling disease processes. And number two, patients get anxious because they're bleeding to death because they're hypoxic, because they're toxic on illicit substances. So oftentimes anxiety can be secondary to the underlying disease process. So we're not going to have anxiety on our list today. And I would urge you when you make your differential for tachycardic patients that you don't include anxiety initially either. It's going to cloud your vision and it really is a diagnosis of exclusion. Before we move into our differential, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about some ways that we can recognize sinus tach and some ways sinus tach can get confused. Now, I'm not a cardiologist or an electrophysiologist, so I'm not gonna go into the nitty gritty detail here, but one of the tough things is to determine whether or not we're dealing with sinus tach or supraventricular tachycardia or SVT. I've been told some rules that were not true. I think that may be the easiest place to start. Number one, rate. Sinus tach can be really fast. I don't know if anybody out there has been taught the greater than 150, less than 150 rule. I know that I was. Less than 150 is sinus tach, greater than 150 is SVT. But I would urge you to hop on a treadmill and go as fast as you can go for a couple minutes and then check your pulse. You're going to be greater than 150. So using rate as an absolute cutoff here is not always accurate. Secondly, looking for P waves, it's tough, right? When you get up into the 160, 170 range, it's, your P waves are often going to be buried into your T waves. So that's a really tough one to use as a hard and fast rule. A couple that I think make a little more sense are looking at the patient in general, looking at the patient's presentation. Most of the time, supraventricular tachycardia is strictly an electrical event. So the patient's going to be entirely well, and then they're going to develop palpitations or a feeling of heart racing feeling of lightheadedness. What were they before? They were absolutely normal. What were they after? They were symptomatic. And that was the conversion from normal sinus rhythm to their SVT. Sinus tach patients, on the other hand, when we move down our differential list, they're going to have medical problems, or they're going to choose to ingest the substance, or they're going to have an illness that's preceding their call to EMS. So they're going to have a preceding history. They're not going to be well and then unwell. They're going to have bleeding, infection, 
shortness of breath, exposure to toxins. We'll get into each of those individually as we move along. So that's another way that we can differentiate between SVT and sinus tack. And finally, sinus tack is often more variable uh, than SVT. For instance, that exercising patient, uh, the patient that was you know, in a house fire, a firefighter, 95 degrees outside, and they come out and they feel lightheaded, and you look at their heart rate on the monitor and you see 130, they rest for a couple minutes and now it's 105, they rest for a couple minutes more and now it's 80. Situationally, that's very, very much more likely to be sinus tack than SVT. SVT is much less variable in its rate than sinus tack. That's enough on that. We can we could go into the weeds on that one all day. I felt like it was worth mentioning before we got started into our differential. And the first part of our differential is going to be uh, very straightforward and something that we've discussed on the podcast before, and that is our shock states. Most of our shock states can cause sinus tack. And the reason why this is important is that most of the time, the sinus tack can precede the hypotension. So if they're hypotensive and tachycardic, it's pretty easy. We do our shock differential, and we've already talked about that before. But especially in pediatric patients where they are so well compensated that they will be tachycardic, tachycardic, tachycardic until they're ready to crash, and then they become hypotensive. And by the time they become hypotensive in the peds patients, you don't have very long, if any time at all, to act. So the important piece to that puzzle is to recognize the sinus tach in the pediatric patients and to realize that that can absolutely be shock, if not a precursor to the shock. So let's go through some of these shock states. First of all, hypovolemic shock, going to be bleeding or volume depletion. So let's hit bleeding first. Most common one we're going to see for non-traumatic hemorrhage is going to be GI bleeds. So ask the patient about their stool color. Ask about their past medical history. Are they an alcohol user? Are they a chronic NSAID user? Check the medication list. Look for your antiplatelets, your aspirin, and your Plavix. Look for Coumadin or Warfarin. And now think about your direct oral anticoagulants, Xarelto, Eliquis, Pradaxa. Take an extra look for those, especially when the patient is tachycardic and complaining of dark stools. It may just be volume depletion and not actual blood loss, dehydration states. So think about vomiting and diarrhea. In the case of enteritis or gastroenteritis, dysentery, pancreatitis is another that can get volume depleted very, very quickly, often thought of clinically as an, as an internal burn even with that much volume loss. DKA is one that we commonly see. So why did diabetic ketoacidosis patients get dehydrated? Their sugars, 600, 700, 800. Kidneys can't filter all that sugar. Some of it spills out into the urine. What follows those highly osmotic glucose particles is water. So they become dehydrated from an osmotic diuresis. Uh, rhabdo and excited delirium patients are another group that can get dehydrated just from you know, excess sweat loss very, very quickly. If you think about the rhabdo patients that we saw here in the area just past couple weekends at Ironman, Texas, those patients go out and they swim a couple miles, bike a hundred plus miles, and then run a marathon. They can have very significant muscle breakdown, very significant fluid shifts. They're dehydrated and, and to a T are all tachycardic. And then your excited delirium patients, we've seen one of those. They're, they're tacky to beat the band, oftentimes from agitation, from preceding substance use. They're sweaty. Think about excited delirium in, in your tachycardic patients. These aren't hard to recognize. You'll have the other keys and clues and components 
to make that diagnosis. So moving on from hypovolemic shock, next on the list is the obvious septic shock. Think about your possible sources for infection. Uh, when you see tachycardia in a patient and it's unexplained, ask questions based on potential sources. So what are our sources? Think about our respiratory sources. Cough and ENT. Do you have ear pain? Do you have sore throat? Do you have trouble swallowing? Are you coughing up a bunch of junk? Are you having trouble breathing? Think about urosepsis, frequency, hesitancy, blood in the urine, urgency. Do you have any changes in your urination? Abdominal sources for infection. Do you have any pain? Do you have vomiting or diarrhea? Do you have blood in your diarrhea? And finally, the sneaky one here is skin sources. And this can be sneaky because if we don't ask and we don't look, these are easy to miss and they can be strikingly obvious when we do look. Things like a big honking axillary abscess, right? If you don't look in or ask about it, patients may not give you the answer. And then Fournier's gangrene, which is necrotizing fasciitis of the perineal area. If you don't undress the patient, you don't ask them, uh, that's, a, that's a bad one to miss because once someone does undress the patient and take a look or even take a smell, it's painfully obvious. So when we see sinus tack, infection needs to be on our list and we need to ask those specific infection source questions. Hypovolemia and bleeding need to be on our list. Again, ask this question specific for non-traumatic bleeding and specific for volume loss and dehydration. Finally, in our shock states list comes obstructive shock. We have to consider both PE and tamponade. So from a PE standpoint, again, history is going to be key. Is the patient having chest pain or shortness of breath? If the pulmonary embolus is large enough to cause tachycardia, it's large enough to cause symptoms. Check the O2 sats to go along with it. Oftentimes, these patients will be hypoxic as well. And then think about PE risk factors. Travel. And this is not travel across town, right? This is prolonged land travel, prolonged air travel. Cancer. Do they have a cancer history? Do they have recent hospitalizations or recent surgeries where they were bedbound? Do they use oral contraceptives if they're a female? And finally, and probably most importantly, have they had a clot in their leg or a clot in their lungs before? Past history puts them at much greater risk for rec recurrent PE, recurrent DVT. And then from a tamponade standpoint, most of the ones we see in the pre-hospital setting uh, is pericardial effusions large enough to cause tamponade are going to be traumatic. So we're going to think about penetrating trauma to the chest or the upper abdomen, especially stab wounds, gunshot wounds. If you have ultrasound ability in your service, take a look at the pericardium. See if you see the big, big wide black stripe there suggesting blood in the, in the uh, pericardial space. So those are the easy three. Bleeding, hypovolemic shock, infection and sepsis, obstructive shock, uh, pulmonary embolus, and uh, cardiac tamponade. But what about some of the others that, that often can get lost in the shuffle? Let's start with toxidromes. And really, anytime you get asked a question about what's in your differential for X, from a uh, pre-hospital emergency medicine standpoint, exposures and ingestions, toxidromes should always really be on your list because there's a toxin that can cause most every symptom. And for sinus tack, uh, there are a couple main groups that I want to discuss. And first is the sympathomimetics. These are the ones that we've all seen and taken care of. Cocaine, methamphetamines, the synthetic marijuana or synthetic THC, which is really a misnomer, but these K2 spice substances bath salts uh, can all cause significant sinus tachycardia. We, we know those. We, taking care of, we take care of those most every shift, really. Uh, but the second group is a little less common. That is anticholinergic overdoses. And the most commonly seen there is going to be Benadryl or antihistamines, often in, with overdose intent. 
So if they both cause confusion, they both cause sinus tachycardia, they both cause mydriasis or large pupils, how do we tell the difference? And the key to tell the difference between these two is going to be to take a good look at the skin. And if you've ever seen someone who's methamphetamine toxic or cocaine toxic, you know that they're sweaty as all get out, right? They're soaking wet. Whereas anticholinergic overdoses are dry. So the key there is a good skin exam and to look for diaphoresis. Lastly, not fitting in either of those groups exactly is going to be our PCP overdoses. And if you've ever seen one PCP overdose, that's all it takes to know what they look like. Extremely agitated, often takes many providers, many law enforcement folks, many uh, EMTs to hold these patients down, hold them back. Thankfully, most of us in our protocols today, more and more of us as the month and years pass, have ketamine at our disposal. And this is really a, a valuable, valuable, valuable tool in these PCP toxic patients because they are very difficult to handle without some sedation most times and some quick, adequate sedation. So think about toxidromes. Think about withdrawal. What substances cause us to withdraw and have sinus tachycardia? And the easiest way to think about that is to think about the substances that when we take them are depressant. So what are the depressant substances that we take? Most commonly, alcohol, depressant, narcotics, depressant, benzodiazepines, your Ativan, clonopins, your Xanaxes of the world, all these things cause respiratory mental status depression when we take them. But when we withdraw, really the opposite occur occurs. So patients can become agitated. They can become hyperdynamic, especially tachycardic. Now, from a morbidity and mortality standpoint, Oftentimes, the narcotic withdrawing patients can look and seem to be the most ill. Retching, vomiting, very uncomfortable, very ill appearing from the start. But for the most part, their vital signs will be much less deranged. Whereas an alcohol withdrawal or a benzodiazepine withdrawal patients can be very tachycardic, very hypertensive, uh, febrile, very altered, and can progress very quickly into delirium tremens or seizures, which carry a very high mortality rate. So why is this important in the pre-hospital setting? If we see a patient that is tachycardic and is agitated and you do a good history, you do a good exam, and you suspect benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal as your culprit, you're going to be ready with the benzos to treat the seizure if it does occur, and you're going to be ready to treat that seizure and treat that patient with very high doses of benzodiazepines because they often require, you know, not a couple milligrams of Versed, but very large and very repeated doses of benzos. And this is important again, because this can be a deadly, deadly condition. So what about fever? Talk about fever and resultant tachycardia from fever. How much tachycardia should we see with fever? Do we, does, is there any information out there that tells us what we should expect? And most of this information is in the pediatric literature. And one of the larger studies that I found was by Davies in the Emergency Medicine Journal uh, back in 2009, so about 10 years old. And they had 60,000 plus pediatric patients. And the gist is that for every one degree increase in temperature in Celsius, there was a 10 beat per minute increase in heart rate. So 37, 98.6. So if we start there. If a patient is 38 degrees, which is 100.4 Fahrenheit, they should have an increase of 10 beats. If they go from 37 to 39, which is 102 plus or minus 102.0 degrees Fahrenheit, they would go up 20 beats. And if they went up three degrees Celsius to 40 degrees Celsius or 
around 104 or 104.0, that would be a heart rate of around 130 or 30 beats per minute above normal. So why is this important? It's important because if the patient has a temperature of, for instance, let's say 101, right? So about 10 to 15 degrees, uh, or excuse me, 10 to 15 beats per minute uh, increase in heart rate is about what you'd expect there. And so let's say they were 101 and their heart rate was 145. Well, that's an inappropriate tachycardic response to just ascribe that to fever, right? So what do they have going on probably with it? They probably have got, you know, early septic shock or early sepsis, right? So we need to be able to relate that so we can say, is this just fever from tachycardia or is the patient progressing, progressing to sepsis? And again, these are just guidelines, but just remember that for every degree Celsius, 10 beats per minute, plus or minus. And if you see someone who's got a temp of 100.1, they're probably still infected. But if their heart rate's 150, then it's probably more than just a fever on board. You'll need to expand your differential out back to the other things that we've talked about and consider, could they be bleeding? You know, could they be septic shock? Could they have a substance on board? Um, and lastly, thyroid storm is going to be the most rare of the things probably that we talked on this list. But it's one worth discussing because patients in thyroid storm can be markedly tachycardic. They can be sinus tach or they can progress to other atrial dysrhythmias. I will recognize that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but the most common cause of thyroid storm is going to be Graves' disease. And these patients can have uh, very pronounced exophthalmos. Put that in uh, regular terms. Their, their eyes can appear to be bulging. Very obvious. If you want to Google image exophthalmos, you see it once, you won't forget it. Everything is revved up in thyroid storm. So when the thyroid is releasing uh, T4 like crazy, the patient's going to have a revved up heart rate. They're going to have diarrhea. They're going to have tremor. They're going to have heat intolerance. Basically, they're, you'll go in their house and the AC will be jacked up. It'll be 62 degrees and they'll be hot. Um, so you want to ask if you see someone with sinus tack and think, man, their eyes look like they're bulging. I think Dr. Patrick said something about exop something, exophthalmos. Ask them about diarrhea. Check and see if they have a tremor. Look at their neck. Look for goiter. It may not always be there. But if you see it, it's, it's a pretty good clue. So there's your differential. Let's run down through it one more time. And the first three are going to be our shock states, right? Uh, hypovolemic, bleeding and volume depletion, infection, septic shock, obstructive shock, PE and tamponade. Then we need to think about toxidromes. We need to think about withdrawal from, from the depressants, right? From alcohol, from narcotics, from benzodiazepines. We need to think about fever as a contributing factor for tachycardia but have an idea about how much you should expect from fever. And finally, thyroid storm. Look at the patient's eyes. Look at the neck. Uh, think about exophthalmos. Uh, let's close up with some, some keys and some take-home points. You know, one thing, if you're listening closely, we've not talked about, and that is pain. Can pain cause tachycardia? And this is one that I am feel fairly strongly about. I don't want to be a stickler and say that pain can never cause tachycardia, but there is some pretty compelling literature out there that really debunks this. Uh, Marco et al., 1,000 patients, looked at pain score of 7 in kidney stone and fracture patients. Average heart rate was 85. A paper by Bossert looked at 1,100-plus patients, followed pain changes in heart rate, and found no correlation. I will link these articles in the, in the show notes for you to look at. Really, I don't want to be so dogmatic and say that pain can never cause tachycardia because I don't know 100% that that's true. But I, 
what I want us to avoid in the pre-hospital emergency setting is looking at a patient with a fractured femur, for example, and saying, oh, that heart rate of 130 is just where he's hurting. Let's give him some pain medicine and, and move on. No, the patient with the fractured femur is probably hemorrhaging, right? Either from that femur fracture itself, where we can lose a liter plus, or the mechanism that caused him to break his femur, the fall, the MVC, the auto-struck uh, pedestrian, got a liver lack or a spleen lack. And so we need to be aggressive with things like TXA, with IV access, with blood products if we have them, fluid resuscitation within reason, those sort of things, as opposed to premature closure and saying pain equals tachycardia equals my differential is no longer. So consider the other differential causes before we fall just on pain. Use your differential to perform your exam. Use your differential to ask your history questions. And we talked about this through each one of these examples. Direct, based, direct your questions, direct your exam based on your differential. Remember that beta blockers can mask or block expected tachycardia. So if, especially in our elderly patients, if we see metoprolol or carvedilol, or atenolol, any of the lols, L-O-L, not laugh out loud, but the suffix of the beta blocker drugs on the list, remember that a heart rate of 90 or 95 in someone on metoprolol that's 75 years old, that may be relative tachycardia. So take a look at your med list and remember that beta blockers can mask that. Sinus tach, I'm going to finish and hit it home again. Sinus tach is never anxiety until everything we've talked about is ruled out. Vital signs are vital for a reason. They're not the kind of an important signs when we think they are. Unexplained tachycardia needs to be explained, is emergent, is potentially high morbidity, high mortality until we figure out why. So take-home points, benzodiazepine, alcohol withdrawal can kill. Be alert. Be ready with your large doses of benzodiazepines that those patients seize. If you see sinus tach and fever, it equals infection. Look for it. Remember that our pediatric patients are going to manifest sinus tachycardia in shock states well before they do hypotension. They're very well compensated, but when they fall off that cliff to hypotension, they're at, they're at their end. Ask about stool color. Look for blood thinners on your medication list and think about GI bleed. 10 beats per minute heart rate increase for every one degree increase in Celsius. So what would you expect with 39 degrees or 102? You'd expect around 120. So if you see markedly above that, shock is probably involved, potential other causes from our differential list. And finally, sinus tach is never anxiety in the EMS setting. It's never just anxiety. Take the patient as being anxious because they're bleeding, because they're infected, because they're hypoxic, because they're in obstructive shock, because they're intoxicated. Uh, run your list. If you just think anxiety, you're going to miss everything else that we've talked about today. That's a good spot for us to wrap up. Please email the podcast, podcast at mchd tx.org if you have questions or concerns. We've recently added the podcast to Stitcher and to uh, Spotify. So if anybody you know listens on either of those platforms, we're there now as well. And it's important for us to get feedback. So please leave us a review uh, wherever you listen, iTunes especially. If you're an iTunes listener, we'd love to, to have our uh, five-star reviews and, and add those up. And as always, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.